0: Well, let's get rolling. We are finally getting back on track. We've taken several weeks off, but we're going to start working towards the end of this series. We've been on meeting Jesus at the feast, okay? And if you haven't been here, you don't know what we're talking about. It's that there are seven feasts that the Jewish people have celebrated for thousands of years. They were instituted by God, and we've been working through them. There are three spring feasts, there's kind of one in the middle, and there are three fall feasts. And we're talking about the fall feasts right now. But let's look at these here real quick. In the spring, you have Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. They all happen in a short amount of time, uh, and they're right then. Then 50 days later, you got Pentecost. And what we're talking about here is showing the prophetic significance of this. That these were not just arbitrary. Now Jesus told the disciples that everything written in this book is about me and he meant it. We spent over a year going through the entire Old Testament finding Christ in there. There were so many different things between the types, the shadows, the stuff that we overlooked that we just read these stories and like, "Oh, that's all nice and stuff." These are not just moralistic stories. These are stories all pointing to the Messiah coming. At Passover, he was our Passover lamb. They sacrificed the lamb, and it had to be without spot or without blemish. It had to be perfect. And that's exactly what Jesus was. When Pilate said, I find no fault in him, he is declaring that he is perfect. He has not committed anything worthy of the death that he suffered. But yet he took the sin upon himself. He was our Passover lamb. And then you get in the unleavened bread and the first fruits. The unleavened bread is that there is no sin in it. There is no leaven in it. They would eat that for seven days. And so they would um, they would go through this. And Jesus was our unleavened bread because he was sinless. And then, of course, first fruits was at the time of his resurrection that even the timing everything that the the priest would go through is that after after the they would announce the uh, unleavened bread and all of that at the end of it that he would be uh, three days and three nights the high priest would go and seclude himself in the the rock and the dome of the rock essentially is what it kind of is in the temple mount and they would go in there and they would hide and then they would come out and they would declare that this feast has now happened it was just first fruits While he was doing that, the other priests would go to the barley thing and they would mark it. It was called marking the omer. And they would wrap them in these cords and say, these are set apart. It's exactly what we see in Matthew is that when Jesus died, how the graves were opened up. And after he resurrected, the, the people came out. It was this idea of first fruits. These are all significant. They're not arbitrary. Then, of course, we get to Pentecost. And Pentecost is always 50 days after the Sabbath. So basically 49 days plus one, getting into the birth of the church, the giving of the Holy Spirit, which we see in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, you have Jesus giving his last commands that you also see in John and Luke and whatnot. But you see him giving his last command, going to all the world and preach the gospel, right? And he said, but before you do that, here's what I need you to do. I need you to wait in Jerusalem. I need you to stay here. Because the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one that would guide us to all truth, is going to come, and he's going to come upon you. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. There was 120 of them there room, and they were waiting for this, and when they did, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. They said they saw tongues of fire upon their head, and that they all began to speak in other tongues, which, of course, raised a ruckus in Jerusalem, because it was the time of the Passover. Passover was one of the three feasts where every all able-bodied male Jews were supposed to come back to Jerusalem, and so there's a lot of people there, and they hear them speaking in tongues, and they're like, what is this? And they're like, oh, some of them said they're drunk. They said, well, they can't be drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. A little too early, the bars don't open until afternoon, so that's why, okay? That's a joke, guys, stay with me. It's all right, tough crowd, let's go. So anyway, but they were they were up there and they were doing this, and then somebody says, like, are these not these people from Galilee? And they looked upon Galileans as if they were just kind of country rednecks. They're not educated, they're stupid, you know? They're just simple folk, right? Most of us in here are simple folk. We kind of we take offense to that, the idea that we don't know anything, and sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. But in that, you see the Holy Spirit come down and you see the birth of the church. And at that day, 3,000 people came to the Lord. The antithesis of this is that the giving of the law, when Moses was up there, he comes down at the, because they were worshiping the calf. 3,000 were executed. At the giving of the law, you see death. At the giving of the Spirit, you see life. Okay. But Jesus, again, fulfilling all of this. Then we get into the fall holidays. Now, what we're saying here is that this is when we are going to see the second coming. Jesus. These here have been fulfilled. He fulfilled these when He came, but He's going to fulfill these when He returns. In Trumpets, we see the rapture of the church, or at least that's what we say, that it was the, the last Trump that the dead in Christ will rise first. That last Trump is always mentioned in the Feast of Trumpets and what they go through for that. And then you've got the Day of Atonement, which is the time period. We're going to call it the Great Tribulation in which we are in this, this area with Christ. And then the Day of Atonement is where it's the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah, and where they, there's a time of repentance and a time of fasting and they are crying out to God and you have the ten days of awe of which they are just strictly seeking God. And we'll say that that is the time of the tribulation in which we will be all believers, everybody who's truly given their life to Christ and made him their Messiah. That doesn't mean you're going to church. That doesn't mean you heard a sermon once or you watched YouTube videos of people that are happy in church. That means that you are a part of the body of Christ and therefore you become the bride of Christ and you are taken away. And during this time that the tribulation is going on. But the last one I want to talk about and we're going to get into today, we're going to touch on it today to give you the background of it. And next week, I'm going to show you how Jesus is going to fulfill it is tabernacles, tabernacles, the feast of tabernacles. We see this beginning in Leviticus chapter 22. So if you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn there. It's good practice to get into is finding these things, underlining parts, learning where they are and where they come from. But I've got it up on the screen as well. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 33. Now, just so you're aware, because it's been several weeks, we've been working through Leviticus 22 as it gives many, many, many different shortened versions of what they're supposed to do in these feasts. It says, then the Lord, verse 33, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation. And you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. To offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. A burnt offering and a grain offering. A sacrifice and drink offerings, Everything on its day. Besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you, when you have gathered into the, in the fruit of the land, you should keep the Feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day of the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot of stuff to unpack there and we're going to get to that. When we talk about the first day of the seventh month, I believe we've got the calendar up here if you can throw that up there for me real quick. You've got their civil calendar and you've got their religious calendar. Now the names are always the same. It's just the order. The month of Tishri was always the first month. But God had told Moses when they were getting ready for the Passover that it should no longer be but the month of Nisan is now the first month for him. So when he talks about the seventh month, He's talking about the month of Tishri. You can see how they've changed. All the names are the same. they just changed the order of them. And on the 15th of the month is where this one begins. Now these all go in sequence. This is after the 10 days of Oz and you get to the day of atonement and all of that. Now you're in this and it says it's going to be seven days plus an eighth day. You're going to have two Sabbaths that are going to come into this. So this is going through the the precursors of this, that the different offerings that need to be made, that there's Sabbath rest going on, which means you do no work, no customary work at all. This is very serious stuff that they talk about. Then it talks about taking these different branches, and then the most important thing is that they are going to dwell in booths. Think of it like tents, and I will show you some of this here momentarily. But the reason for that is because he made the children of Israel dwell in these booths when they brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now, besides this passage, the Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned in five other places throughout Scripture. Okay? Now, we're going to look at Numbers chapter 29 here because it's going to go into the specifics about these sacrifices that have to be made. Alright? Numbers 29, we're going to start in verse 12. It says, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month you shall have a holy convocation. You should do no customary work and you shall keep a feast of the Lord for seven days. You should present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams and fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. They're Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an epath for each of the 13 bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the 14 lambs. Also, one kid of the goat as a sin offering. Besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and it's drink offering. Now, that's a lot of offerings, right? But they're getting, remember, the burnt offering is freely given, but it was completely consumed. The sin offering was given because we have done wrong. So again, we're, we're getting a repentance type of thing going on. On the second day, present... Twelve young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the bloods by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering with this grain offering and their drinks offerings. On the third day, present eleven bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number, according to the ordinance. Also one goat, as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the fourth day, present ten bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in the first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number, according to the ordinance. Also one kid of the goat, as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. Are you worn out yet? Well, we're not done. On the fifth day present nine bulls, two rams and fourteen lambs in the first year without blemish and their grain offering and their drink offering for the bulls and for the rams and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. Also one goat is a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and it's drink offering. On the sixth day present eight bulls, two rams and fourteen lambs in the first year without blemish and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls and the rams and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinance. Also one goat is a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, it's grain offering and it's drink offering. On the seventh day present Seven bulls, two rams, and 14 lambs in their first year without blemish. And their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, by their number, according to the ordinance. Also, one goat is a sin offering besides the regular bird offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. What a bloodbath! They're killing stuff all the time. Every single day, they are making a number of offerings. To certain bulls, certain goats, certain rams. I mean, all of this stuff, a total of 70 bulls are offered during this period, which is a lot, all right? Any farmers in here? That's not cheap, right? Those bulls are valuable. They cost a lot. According, now this is what's interesting. When we're getting, remember, we're looking at the background of this from a Jewish perspective. Next week we'll get into the Messianic side of this. But right now we're looking at this. According to Judaism, these 70 bulls represent the seven, or 70 Gentile nations that are listed in Genesis chapter 10. Remember Genesis 10 has got the table of nations. All right. Genesis chapter 10, there is no Israel yet. And in 11, we see the Tower of Babel. In 12, we see the call of Abraham. That's when the nation of Israel is officially born, but doesn't come together till later. What's significant about this? Now, think about this. These are Jewish things, right? Every one of these feasts are celebrated by the Jewish people. They were commanded by God. God said, you're going to do this for eternity." or forever is what it says, they're going to continue. They continue it to this day. They still do these. Now, they're not doing them correctly. They're not doing them as they were because they have no temple of which to make these sacrifices in. So sometimes they sacrifice a chicken in place of some of this stuff. All right? But only 10% of them are very devout Jewish people following Orthodox Judaism. But many of them this time will still celebrate the festivals. They will still celebrate Rosh Hashanah and Passover and all of that. And they still, in this time, will dwell in booths. Now, the time period for this is September, October, somewhere in that range. And when we get there uh, in the actual calendar, I'll point it out to you when we get there. But the bottom line is this. They've connected Judaism with this feast with the Gentiles, the only feast that ever does that. Now, remember, they separate themselves. They have nothing to do with Gentiles. Right? Now I'm going to give you a hint, and I'm going to give you a clue, because one of the things that we believe is that the rapture of the church will take place prior to the tribulation. There's that seven-year period. Three and a half of it is pretty good, where the Antichrist raises up, He makes an accord with the Jewish people and with the world. There's peace in the Middle East. And then the last three and a half years is utter chaos. It's World War III or four or five, or whenever it happens to fall, OK? But the church is taken away. You've got this going on. The tabernacles is the return and setting up of that thousand-year reign, the Messianic kingdom of Christ. Now, who does that include? All people. Remember, Jesus said that I came just for the Jewish people there, but because of their rejection and they weren't prepared and they didn't see it, it opened the door to the Gentiles. When he's coming back, he's going to be for all people. Now, this is the only festival in which there's a connection there with the Gentile world. If you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. It's everybody else, so you know so there's a lot going on here in getting all of this. But the 70, in their mind, has always represented this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And that's significant. Now, secondly, De- Deuteronomy 16, when we look at this, is the second place that we see this feast mentioned. And it puts an emphasis on rejoicing. De- Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. When you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress, you shall rejoice in your feast. You and your son and your daughter, you your male servant, your female servant, and the Levi, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord and to God your God in place in the place which your Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and all the work of your hands so that you surely rejoice. We have a rejoicing thing. What are they rejoicing? This has to do with the harvest, okay? You've got the spring harvest, which is the barley harvest and all of that. You've got the fall harvest, which is the harvest of the fruits, the dates, the grapes, the figs, the olives, all that kind of stuff. They're bringing it in. They're rejoicing during this time. Now, if you had to make 70 sacrifices of bulls, how happy are you about it? Probably not real happy. But again, the whole point of all of this is is they're putting their hope in God, that God is going to provide for us. So they are rejoicing here because they are excited because they have brought in the harvest. Now, the third place is going to see, and this is what's crazy about this. Remember, we've talked about it in Leviticus and we've talked about it in Numbers. How often were they supposed to do this feast? Every single year, correct? Okay, now let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. It's a lot of background information, I realize that. Um, next week will be a little more exciting, I can promise you. But you need to understand this so you can understand the significance of Jesus in this, all right? Nehemiah chapter 8. Now remember, Nehemiah is the guy that built the wall, right? He's the one that got sent back because he heard about the people that had gone back to Israel. After Cyrus had allowed them to go back and uh, build the temple, they finally get that done. But they have no way of protecting them. So Nehemiah asks the king. The king gives them his blessing to go there. They get the wall built. After the wall built, Ezra's there. And Nehemiah is there, and Ezra is going to read the law before them when they're dedicating it, essentially. Now, that's where we're at. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 13, it says, Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers, houses of all people, with the priests and Levites, were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, now watch, they found written, okay, which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the Feast of the Seventh Month. So what are we talking about? Feast of Tabernacles. "...and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of the oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of the leafy trees, to make booths as it is written." So they discovered this. They were unaware of this. Now they've been in captivity for years. But again, the Jewish people have never lost their heritage. In all the years they've been scattered, they've never lost their heritage. So they're fineness, so they're going to go and they're going to do what's necessary to keep this feast." Verse 16, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the court of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. Remember, there's several gates going around this wall. So the whole assembly of those had returned from captivity, made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day that the children of Israel had not done so. And there was great gladness also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed matter. This think about this, guys, because this thing is startling. That this feast is kept here for the very first time since Joshua. Who was Joshua? He's the one that led them into the promised land. To, there is no Jerusalem. There's no, there's no central place where they met. That's how long... We're talking thousands of years. I mean, we're, we're, this is not... This is centuries, guys. That The righteous reign, when David and Solomon were in power and things were good, they didn't keep this feast. This thing had been lost, but God had told them to do it Forever. And so they had the the date for the dedication of the first temple that, that Solomon had built coincides with the Feast of Tabernacles. They didn't keep that. They just celebrated that the temple got built. There's several things that are going on here. This is a huge thing because they have to, they take this stuff very seriously. Now, there's two other passages that talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. The fourth one that we haven't talked about is in Zechariah chapter 14. And we'll discuss it because there's a significant Messianic portion of this. We'll get into that. And then the fifth one is John chapter 7 to John chapter 10 is where actually you see Jesus keeping this feast. And we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But you guys, you see the significance here. I mean, this had not been done for uh, at least a thousand years. I mean, I don't know exactly the time frame, but it had been a long time. Prior to them going into the promised land, to this point, Joshua was the last one leader that had anything to do with this. Now, when we look at this feast, it goes by five different names. All right. The first name is simply The Feast. When the Jews talk about the feast, they usually mean the Feast of Tabernacles. This is one, that's what it goes with. There's a lot of pomp and ceremony that's connected with it, obviously, because they're building huts. They're building a, a temporary residence. The second thing is called is Sukkot, or it's the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is what you and I typically talk about when we talk about this. And, and I'll show you what a, a sukkah looks like in a little bit. But the third thing is the Feast of the Gathering, and this is the gathering of the harvest the end of the summer harvest Exodus 23 marks the end of the summer harvest and that's when they're coming together so it's the feast of end gathering the fourth name is the eighth day of assembly now this eighth day is actually an independent holiday that is from the feast of tabernacle but it connects it because it is the day after the end it's the conclusion of the festivities because they are celebrating again the harvest and then the fifth name is called Simchat Torah which means the rejoicing over the law it's also the name that's given it because of the eighth day in Numbers 29, of the cycling of the reading of the law. Because what the rabbis did is they took the first five books of Moses, the Torah, and they divided it in 52 parts. And each part is read in the morning of the Sabbath that they read a, what they call a Torah portion. Perhaps you've heard that before. And so that way, at the end of the year, they've gone through the entire Torah And so on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this concludes the reading of Deuteronomy and begins the reading of Genesis. They don't necessarily go in the same order that you and I would have. So there are, again, a lot of pregroups, but there's a lot of different names that are given here, a lot of background information. Now, when we get into the biblical practice of it, there are several things that we want to look at. First of all, it was a seventh day festival with an eighth day later added to it, not necessarily prescribed by God. But... The second thing is, is that when they do this, when they would, they would build these booths or these tabernacles, and it was commemorating the 40 year, years that they would wander in the wilderness after they fled Egypt. During those 40 years, they would build these huts and stuff, and it was emphasizing these temporary abodes. They were not where they were supposed to be. They were not building something with footings and foundations. It was temporary. And so in remembrance of that, the Jews would go outside, and during these seven days, they will live in these what are called sukkahs, S-U-C-C-A-H. And this is kind of what it looks like. Now, this is modern-day stuff. This is not what they looked like then. But they were supposed to, and this is in Israel... Okay, they do this every year. You see other. this is down in the, the things. you got them up in the balconies and all of that. They go out and they live in these things for, for days. Now, it's hard to tell, but these roofs are pretty well closed off. They're supposed to leave gaps in it because they should be able to see the stars through it, and it's allow some sunlight in. But again, it's, it's, it's very important stuff. Do I have another picture of that? Or is that the only one? Okay, that's the only one. Um, The third thing about this is when they do, there are four different species of fruit and and branches that they bring in. They bring in a citron, and they got three types of branches, a palm branch, a myrtle branch, and a willow branch. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the fourth thing is that it was a time of rejoicing after the Day of Atonement, because the Day of Atonement, the Ten Days of Oz, was a time of fasting and prayer. It was a time of affliction. Now we're celebrating. So there's a difference. And then the last thing about this is is that it was a feast of first fruits in the sense that it was the first fruits of the fall harvest, which is part of all of those sacrifices. When the Bible says that you bring a first fruit offering, it is the first without knowing how the rest of the harvest is going to go. The first fruit of your uh, livestock, you don't know if that animal will ever have another baby. You take that firstborn, you're dedicating it to God because you're putting your trust in Him that they will go on from here. Now, there are three symbols in the Jewish observance that talk about this. Obviously, the booth of the tabernacle, which is, is, is talking about national hope. Because it was in Amos chapter 9, we see this talk, talking about where uh, Amos is, is prophesying essentially. But that there would be a time where the nation of Israel, the house of David, the tabernacle of David would be restored. And Amos chapter 9 verse 11 says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as is the days of old. Now, the practice of this, what they would do, is that they would build it out of these flimsy materials. The pictures I showed you were pretty... Pretty stout. I mean, they were, you know, they sell kits of these things now, okay, which kind of defeats the purpose. I know some people over here that are in Messianic conversation, they'll just go outside and sleep in a tent. OK, so in some way they're, they're attempting to do it, but it's not the same um, because it was supposed to be flimsy. It's supposed to have the sense of insecurity, because imagine you're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. There's never a time that you were secure. Remember what the wilderness always represents and desert represents. It is that it is a place of the demons. You're in a place that you do not belong. So the roof would be made out of these branches, as I was saying, they would weave them together and put them together, but they should allow some light in, more shade than sunlight, but you should be able to see the stars. And then inside of it, they would decorate it with the fruit, like the citron and all of this stuff, um, and nuts and other things that are coming from the harvest, because again, they're celebrating this time. Another symbol is called lulav, L-U-L-A-V, which is the combination of these three types of branches. And I've got a picture here of this, I believe. Yeah. You can see this here, okay? There's three types of branches. That's the citron. That's the fruit. And that was the one they would would talk about. But um, it was part of the palm branch, the myrtle branch, and the willow branch. And they would tie one palm branch with three myrtle branches and two willow branches. And it would be carried in the hand, and they would carry it around, and they would wave it and stuff. And this is used during the time of prayer for rain because the rainy season is about to begin in the year in Israel. so And then you got the third one, which is that fruit. It's a citron. It's, it symbolizes the fruit of the promised land. It's, very, it's like a lemon. It's about the size of a hen egg. So it's a little bit smaller. It's a little bit wrinkly. If you cut it open, it's got a lot more rind, a lot less fruit in it than our, what we have in lemons. But I'm sure it's our genetically modified or something. I don't, I don't have a clue. But this is the most important symbol of these four different things because of its fragrance. Okay? You've got the palm branch that has fruit, but it has no fragrance. The myrtle branch has fa- fragrance, but no fruit. And the willow has neither. It doesn't smell good, and it doesn't produce fruit. But the citron, this fruit, was the, the symbol of prosperity, the symbol of leaning on God, the symbol of God's promise in this promised land when they would enter into it. Again, these are all connecting back to the time that they're traveling from Egypt. Okay? Now... When we get out of this, the second item that we talk about when the Jewish observed these things is during the second temple period to the time of Jesus. So the second ter- temple period is when Cyrus said, okay, go back and build your temple. So 530 B.C. up to 70 A.D., that's when the temple was destroyed again. Remember that. And we've talked about that before. But the, the priest would come out. It was called a pouring out of the water. And what would happen is they, the priest would leave the temple, they would travel either through the Kidron Valley or along the edge of it there and go to the Pool of Siloam where they would fill these pictures. Okay, now, I've got a map of this to kind of show you what I'm talking about. Okay, Now, this is a, uh, uh, um, a diagram, basically. This is not an actual picture. But up here is the Temple Mount. All right, So they're up here in the temple. This is the Kidron Valley. And then here is the Pool of Siloam. And so they, they would either leave, they could go this way, but many times they would go because of the suffering. That's the idea. They would come through and they would come out here, enter back in up through over here, go back the same way because there were ways to get in over there. But they would march back up the temple and as they're doing that, they would uh, recite Psalms 120 through 134. And there were 15 steps up into the temple compound and then they would pour out the water into these large labors in these t- temple compounds. Now... This was followed by great rejoicing. And the rabbis would say, He who has not seen the rejoicing at the pouring out of the water has not seen rejoicing in all his life. The rabbis looked at this upon, again, this is going to be a precursor in the next week, is that this pouring out of the water representing the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the nation of Israel, specific to the nation of Israel. Now where did we see that? We talked about this, Acts chapter 2. We see the pouring out of spirit, but it wasn't just for the nation of Israel, but at that time it was poured out upon the nation of Israel only. We see a fulfillment there. The other thing that they would do is they would kindle these lights. They had these huge lampstands all through the temple. And so they would come in here, and they, each lampstand had four golden cups, and they were lit towards sundown. But because there were so many lights, that they, they would create so much brightness that the rabbi said that there was not a house in Jerusalem which was not lit by the light coming from those huge lampstands. So you have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, but that light represented the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. So you have all of these things that are going on. Then you also have, they would read out of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is considered a kind of a pessimistic book, but it was at the end of this that would turn the mood of the masses that had just experienced this long holiday season with the Feast of Trumpets and everything, getting to the Feast of Tabernacle, coming out of the pessimism into the rejoicing, because now we're at the harvest. You know, the planting isn't that much fun, and the working of the ground isn't that much fun, but when the harvest is coming in, that's when they're excited, Right? I mean, we all know farmers, right? They're all grumpy right now. There ain't enough rain. They got to go spray this, got to do that. But come harvest time, they're loving life, as long as the market's good. Okay? Another thing that they would do is they pray for rain during this time, because they're going into the rainy season here, so they begin to pray for rain. But it was also a time of rejoicing. And during this time, the Jewish people would sing, and they would dance, and they're doing dances and all this other stuff. And then they also eat a special kind of food called Keplak. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Creplock, however you say it. It's this ravioli. i got a picture of it. Kind of this triangle ravioli. Now, this is an Americanized version of this. And it actually looks pretty tasty. Um, I've been told by people that if you're not Jewish, you probably won't like it because it's kind of bland. I don't know. I've never had it. And I wouldn't say I wouldn't try it, but, but you never know. But anyway, but again, it's talking about, and this symbolized the beating of the branches where the Jews prayed for rain, so they're waving those things up in the air. There's a lot of of circumstance with this. I mean, there's a lot to keeping these, and this is what I'm trying to get you guys to understand, is that I know that this stuff here is a lot to take in, and it's a lot to understand, and it's a lot to try to gather, but all of it has a purpose, and all of it's fulfilled with Christ. Now, I've kind of hinted into some of this stuff, the pouring out of the water, and the different things in how Jesus is going to keep this feast, but how the return of that kingdom, how all 70 nations are considered, all the Gentile nations are there. There's a purpose for that, because when Jesus returns, he's returning for everybody who is his son, right? So this is what we need to understand, is that they've been doing this for years, but there's a purpose for it. So I know these times when I have to spend as much time as I do giving you a background of it, isn't the most exciting thing in the world. I promise you next week you'll enjoy it a lot more. It's a lot of information. It's like trying to take a drink of water out of a fire hose. It's not easy. Okay? I don't know if you've ever tried it, but it's not easy. I did try it once. It hurt a lot. I had a friend of mine that was a fire, fireman when I was a kid, and he said, here, you want to try this? And he turned it on low. And uh, you ever seen those things when they're riding and they turn the fire hose on people and they shoot? that's not acting, That it hurts. In fact, today he'd probably be fired or sued or something for it, back then they just all laughed. So, But guys, there's just so much to this scripture and stuff that what they're doing, even down to this food and what it represents, how it's got this this feeling of the Messiah coming into it. And so again, I promise you, next week you'll enjoy it a lot more, it'll make a lot more sense, but if I attempted to give you that part of it, you wouldn't get to go home today. So, You're welcome, we're getting out of here.